friends, welcome to today's podcast. I'm Dr. Tio Wan Lin, the host of Dermatologist Talks Science of Beauty, a beauty podcast. Well, if you remember the last podcast, we discussed the impact of evolutionary psychology on beauty standards. And we also touched on how philosophy actually has a lot to teach us on this subject. Today, I want to delve into the uh, medical aspect of perception and specifically the perception of beauty and also introduce a term, neuroaesthetics. So it's actually a very interesting, fairly new discipline that is evolving. It uh, encompasses both art as well as the realm of cognitive neuroscience. Wow, that's really interesting. I've honestly never heard of this term before. I mean, the last episode, I know we spoke about how individuals end up seeking out relationships with altruistic persons rather than purely good-looking individuals. When we do, it is because we think that their good looks are somewhat linked to their altruistic characteristics. This is because our subconscious mind perceives that there are potential benefits we can reap from having such a relationship with this individual. As I reflected on this, I realized indeed that as one receives kindness from another individual, this actually very easily translates into a positive emotion of goodness. Come to think of it, that definitely affects my perception of the other person. I think many of our listeners can identify with this as well. That's right, Chelsea. So as quickly as one realizes that the converse is also true, then in terms of our experience with beautiful people who have very ugly behaviors, then I think we can really define um, and think of beauty as an experience much more than a standard. Now, that brings us to what I was talking about before this, which is neuroaesthetics. So it's the study of the physiological processes involved in primarily, we think, our brain uh, that's also uh, connected to the other parts of our uh, body and also our senses via a neuroendocrine pathway, which means that it involves and triggers off the release of uh, several different uh, chemical mediators that give us the um, sensations that contribute to this experience of beauty. So neuroaesthetics, I think, is best defined as uh, the also the biological basis of aesthetic experiences. Uh, to put it in a layperson's perspective, I think it refers to anything, basically, that can uh, evoke an emotion of beauty or, you know, just a, a sense of beauty. So these experiences can involve assessments of objects present in nature, for example. Uh, it can also be in relation to an artifact or even as an overall response to one's environment. Well, I'm actually quite impressed by this, because in a sense, the realm of art and humanities has always been thought of as very subjective. In direct contrast, we've always thought anything that is scientific wouldn't be able to explain how art appeals to the human eyes. So it seems like what you're talking about here in terms of neuroaesthetics could be the very key to decoding how the experience of art evokes this emotion of beauty in us. Yes, Chelsea. And in fact, I would like to put it across this way. 
aesthetic encounters um, is perhaps a better term to use in terms of um, an objective way we can uh, describe the experience of beauty that we come across every day in our lives. And what neuroscientists have tried to explore is actually the biological basis of these experiences. This is actually very important um, because it can help our understanding of human behavior uh, in evolutionary psychology, which is what we spoke about in the last episode. And if you reflect on how this eventually does affect the way we think about the process of natural selection, for example, um, if this affects the basis uh, by which one, uh, how our uh, ancestors have chosen our partners, or how we do so still is based on whatever we think is driving the uh, laws of attraction. Uh, not just that, our choices as a consumer, how we communicate with others, and even our preferences for art. I actually didn't come across something which I found pretty relevant here. So apparently, the way we find meaning and knowledge in our experiences actually has more to do with how we perceive it rather than the experience itself. I guess this is along the line of what you're talking about. It is really our perception of the experience that determines how we feel about something. So this actually brings me uh, to a study that was published in 2014 by a team led by Chatterjee that demonstrated how experiences of beauty, um, what we will in this episode refer to as a neuroaesthetic experience, uh, is actually related to complex interactions between not just our senses that impact our bodily response to it, but also our emotional valuation. So that means how we value something at that moment. And that's exactly how you described it. So this process through which we find meaning and acquire knowledge it can be explained uh, via the process of perception. Uh, the neuroesthetic experience, firstly, should be considered an emotional response to our external environment perceived via our senses. So essentially, these stimuli are intricately connected via our neural systems, the nerve cells and the neurons that help us in our uh, mental state to make these decisions that results in a complex experience that we call beauty. So uh, hopefully that puts everything into perspective. As a biochemistry student, I actually was particularly fascinated by how neurochemistry affects our body responses and also our emotions. Now I know that it actually affects the way I judge something as well. This is really important because neuroaesthetics itself belongs to the field of cognitive neuroscience. That's right. It actually involves perception, emotion, semantics, our attention, and of course, all this is intricately linked with our personalities as well, which ultimately determines how each of these processes that we've described differ um, from another individual's uh, processes because of this uh, either genetic or uh, environmentally related differences in personality. And 
ultimately, all these things will impact the decisions we take with regards to our emotional valuation of a subject um, or, or you know what we eventually deem as a beautiful experience. So since 2014, uh, when this study was uh, published until now, I think we have seen growing interest in this field, particularly in terms of how music, art, dance, Literature and the media has been shown to give a lot of hope to humanity, uh, not just in terms of being able to heal the human psyche, but because it brings about this positive emotion of beauty to the individual. So actually, I think if it was two decades ago that we were talking about this, it would have been dismissed as you know, maybe emotional hogwash. But today, as our understanding of neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience in particular evolves, we know that uh, all these positively impact um, the human body uh, and it is directly affecting our well-being and it is objectively measured uh, via psychology and aesthetic appreciation encapsulated in this new field of neuroaesthetics. So interestingly, I think we can now deduce that um, whether we think another human being is objectively beautiful or not is potentially inconsequential because uh, our perception can change. And another individual's perception can be uh, rather different from ours. So in that sense, there really can be no correct answer uh, with regards to beauty, but there can be a correct emotion, for example. Mm, yeah, that is actually really insightful. I think there may be a role to acknowledge that there are certain traditionally perceived features that, that are considered more attractive to others. Of course, we, can, we have to take in consideration of the different cultures that also influence our perception of beauty. However, I think we already spoke about this in our previous episode, that an objectively beautiful person can also come across as ugly because of ugly behaviors. The converse is also true. Now I know that it really is because of this emotion invoked in us as a response to the individual. It's actually much more than how they look. So, Chelsea, you know, it's a really difficult uh, topic, actually. But what we're trying to do here is to understand how biological mechanisms have evolved along with humankind uh, and try to make sense of what is healthy or unhealthy for the human psyche. So uh, for me, I actually uh, do see quite a fair number of cosmetic dermatology patients and my plastic surgeon colleagues, and I do come across individuals with body uh, dysmorphophobia, which is a, a psychiatric condition whereby the individual is obsessed with uh, thoughts of imperfection uh, with regards to their physical features. I wrote about this in my paper, uh, which was uh, published in February this year in the International Journal of Dermatology, as a link uh, to perhaps 
uh, unrealistic societal expectations and, and that we really need to reflect on how uh, physicians could intervene uh, in a positive or a negative way with regards to this subject. And, you know, before we can sit on our high horses and say, oh, you should not think about it this way, you know, and um, it is easy for us to try to say it's just a small subset of individuals who maybe are genetically prone to um, such obsessive thoughts. But I think you and I can actually really see uh, from our personal experiences um, and maybe even and uh, how it's impacted people we know, uh, the social impact on our psyche with regards to the need to look perfect. So you mentioned the, in the last uh, episode that, you know, for example, Instagram has gotten some bad press because of its a negative impact on particularly teenage girls and their self-esteem. And that has really got to do with the fact that, um, you know, everything on Instagram is curated. For example, um, there is a certain reason why there, you know, we use this term Instagram perfect. Um, now, in my generation, um, I feel that uh, it is a little bit easier for us to distinguish between uh, what is tied to this uh, Instagram uh, perfect uh, generation and what is realistic. And, and maybe it's a bit easier for me to uh, see why certain aspects of it is unhealthy and make a conscious decision to not be affected by it. But I'm not certain if um, the millennials, for example, are able to make that distinction because that's actually all that they've grown up with, this digital world. I think it's really interesting what you just said. For example, I am part of Gen Z and I do feel that there is an unrealistic world that is portrayed on Instagram. It is just so pervasive in society that we just give up and kind of think that maybe this is really um, reflecting who we are as human beings and this is maybe how we want to be. What do you think about that? So the key here, I feel, as a physician is uh, to take a rational approach uh, to uh, switching this societal mindset. So as a woman of science, I think that um, I can say in terms of science and our um, endeavors in medicine, it has always led the way uh, forward um, for advancements, uh, and it is based on our uh, logical inquiry method where we see that something which brings about a positive outcome uh, consistently and with that which is replicable in uh, subsequent experiments uh, is going to be favored over another option which has a less favorable outcome. And that is obviously the reasoning behind us doing clinical trials and, um, you know, employing statistics to um, state with uh, evidence that option A is better than option B. Now, with the aim of 
using art as a very relatable experience for the layperson, uh, for this aesthetic experience that we're talking about here, I personally find that it is a very useful bridge um, to try to increase understanding of what we are talking about in terms of a neuroaesthetic experience being the best way to uh, determine this concept of beauty uh, in a positive way. So with regards to having a positive outcome um, in terms of emotional well-being, I think that without a doubt, it helps us to not focus on physical appearances because it is first of all, so variable. And, you know, there's a matter of your taste. And even though we, we have amazing advances in the field of cosmetic dermatology and um, in plastic surgery, it's still um, a never-ending quest if you are trying to look like someone else or thinking that you have to look like a better version of yourself constantly. And I, I find that it's very stressful. Well, that's my personal experience. Um, I, I'm not expecting everyone to agree with me. But in terms of what I think a scientific approach would be to this matter is that uh, reducing emphasis on a perfection of our physical features can improve our mental well-being. Now, from an artistic perspective, uh, which is what we are using as a standard for uh, an experience of beauty that everybody can relate to, uh, I think we can also um, state that art itself has always been an enigma to scientists because it's so variable and yet it is distinct in a way that we are almost unable to put our finger on what makes some art beautiful and others not so beautiful. So the bridge is between these two and is found in this field of neuroaesthetics. This specialty field of cognitive neuroscience uh, can help us understand, for example, the cultural distinctiveness of art. So through different cultures, different types of art, um, we learn that it can be appreciated uh, across different cultures as if there are some universal properties. And, you know, I would like to posit that this could actually be due to the fact that we as human beings of, um, you know, the same species are actually hardwired to genetically find certain things appealing. The other aspect is equally curious and paradoxical because uh, when we say it is culturally distinct, it inherently implies great diversity as well. Um, and, you know, we've always discussed about this concept, nature versus nurture. So perhaps the environmental impact on our personal taste as well is significant. And um, in terms of this neuroaesthetic experience uh, when it's applied to art, itself is a testimony to the complex functions of the human brain, which, uh, you know, despite it being a common feature uh, in terms of its structure, etc., to all Homo sapiens, is distinct in terms of how it manifests 
as human personality, and also the fact that it does evolve depending on how it reacts to environmental influences, something which we call brain plasticity. Wow, I've actually never thought of it that way before. I guess I can somehow relate to that idea, but it's somewhat difficult because, for one, I've always wondered if animals, for example, would go about judging other animals as being beautiful or not the way us humans do. Isn't that quite funny to think about? You know, I think we have to realize that um, perhaps it is us humans uniquely that are imbued with this specific trait of, I guess, perception or valuation. Uh, we're really not sure if other species have that kind of perception as well, although we know clearly that they are equally conscious. As a medical doctor and also as one who appreciates art, I feel that every encounter with an artwork is actually uh, factually proven to engage flexible neural networks in um, our brains. So that can be used as uh, evidence that something is happening to modulate this context in which uh, art is appreciated by us. So uh, our expectations are also different. So um, in terms of our personal biases, uh, which can be due to experiences in the past or, um, let's say, our current emotional state, our personal hopes, aspirations, all of that actually culminate in one final momentary assessment or what we like to call judgment of this aesthetic experience, leading us to call something beautiful versus something that doesn't appeal to us. So, you know, I think what we really need to understand right now is that um, this appreciation of art may be the key to uh, how we are wired as, uh, you know, homo sapiens, human beings, to um, experience beauty uh, and that which is distinct to our species. I feel that it's so important for us to recognize the role that the humanities and the arts have to play in our overall well-being. I was so disturbed because when the, when the COVID-19 pandemic first started in Singapore, there was this publishing house that made this declaration that there were certain jobs regarded as essential. Healthcare, for example, was under the essential job categories. Certainly, there were many individuals who felt upset or lost because, like for example, those who work in art, it seemed to send a message that they no longer played a role or a useful, essential role in society. Chelsea, I feel that um, that is a real defining moment for many of us. Singapore as, a, um, as an urban society is regarded as one that is highly efficient and um, prides itself on being highly pragmatic in terms of our workaholic culture and uh, overall our clockwork-like efficiency. And it's really fantastic that you know we see there has been a lot of advocacy for the arts um, for the last decade and it's really time for us to acknowledge that this appreciation of art is part of our core being uh, and that is because we have emotions we have moods we have different thoughts every single moment of the day and the 
perception of art, a viewing of art, can actually be a very meditative experience, uh, which in itself is uh, beneficial for our physiological well-being, uh, because at least when we view a piece of artwork, um, you know, we actually start to reflect on our own mental and emotional state. Uh, so something that psychiatrists call a mindful state. But the other thing that we recognize here is that the appreciation of certain types of art can actually be learned. And that is very interesting because of the biological process of um, the network connection, which becomes strengthened apparently when the individual is repeatedly exposed to this certain type of artwork. Yeah, that's indeed very interesting. It means that our perceptions of beauty can actually be taught. And maybe we can potentially change the way that we see things. I see where we're headed for now. Chelsea, I feel that if there is one thing I would like to see a change in, it is really how we should, uh, you know, proceed as a society to view this topic of physical beauty. So, as I've said, we are very fortunate uh, that we now have several interventions in our armamentarium and cosmetic dermatology and plastic surgery to reconstruct, to restore. Uh, but as Important as these things are, especially to individuals who are sufferers of trauma, for example, I feel that there is something um, that, you know, is a much more insidious poison than um, anything uh, else that uh, is relevant to the realm of cosmetic dermatology today, and that is really body dysmorphophobia. It is a vicious cycle, and I'm going to revisit it again, that essentially individuals who suffer from body dysmorphophobia actually have a perception that uh, one of their body parts is flawed, and it kind of kind of just takes over their entire mind and it becomes an obsessive thought, a compulsion, uh, arises then to change that perception, that perceived flawed part of themselves. And um, that actually is a real problem when we are treating certain individuals in a cosmetic setting. Uh, I feel that as much as we you know, like to say that psychiatric conditions are, uh, you know, influenced by one's genetics, societal expectations can clearly impact and influence the individual because we have learned that these processes of emotional valuation are not exactly innate and they can actually be taught. So our perception of certain things can change. So it's my hope, of course, that we eventually start to acknowledge that ultimately it is uh, physical health that, uh, you know, is much more important uh, than anything else. And part of physical health also is mental and emotional health. We have seen many um you know, examples of uh, suicides or mental illness in the entertainment industry. Uh, in, in the Korean pop culture, it's been very well publicized to be harsh on the entertainers themselves, their self-esteem because of these expectations to keep to a certain physical appearance or weight. So I think that, you know, once we realize 
our brain has these very flexible networks and that um, this standard of beauty is actually um, a construct that is made up by society or we choose to believe that, then our brains can adapt and we can then be under less pressure to look a certain way. And as a medical doctor, uh, I feel that you know we should be the first to lead the way in terms of um, you know, bringing about a trend or um, like a world where we hopefully make it a little kinder and gentler on individuals who may not feel like they were, um, you know, born with perfect features. Um, and hopefully that helps them on a uh, psychological level at least we start when influencing them positively when they're children uh, as opposed to uh, only trying to correct this when they present with uh, issues with regards to the self-esteem well i'm not exactly an artist but i think i can certainly appreciate what you're talking about because i have found myself being able to like something which i previously didn't see beauty in before i think that art itself is very interesting as a universal experience because in a sense everyone can perceive art it might as well be synonymous with the aesthetic experience that is common to all of us humankind Yes, so now we actually also know that there is a solid biological and scientific basis with all these neural systems common to us. And I think it is now very, very pertinent for us to put a functional note to this discussion about the aesthetic experience. So what we've covered today actually is this. There are certain standards in beauty which are probably a result of um, historical evolution. Uh, our perhaps hardwired instincts in terms of what uh, we are looking for, for example, in a partner uh, following the laws of evolution and natural selection. Uh, but we also realize that there is this neural cognitive process that's occurring, uh, which we can describe as a neuroaesthetic experience that involves our senses um, and how it's communicating with our minds. Uh, organically, our brain seems to be the place where these decisions are being made. How we arrive at the judgment of something being beautiful uh, is actually a result of many different factors. And because of our understanding of the brain and cognitive neuroscience, we know that at the end of the day, that is actually very much a matter of choice rather than what is considered objective reality. So, you know, my hope is that today's podcast uh, brings some clarity with regards to how we can actually rationalize an approach towards beauty that is good for our, um, you know, psychology, our uh, psychological well-being, and at the same time, is consistent with what we know um, is happening 
in our bodies, our brains, uh, so that we are still, uh, you know, following scientific methods to pursue a rather abstract experience. Uh, in that way, we can perhaps uh, allow some level of intervention uh, on a societal level that can help us move in a positive direction uh, with regards to managing beauty standards and perceptions. Well, this has been such an insightful podcast for me, and I'm really excited for this upcoming series on neuroaesthetics. Well, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this discussion. I certainly enjoyed being a part of it. For more on the podcast, do check out our website, www.scienceofbeauty.net. We do have a new section on augmented reality, and there will be more on that coming up soon. Remember to follow Dr. Teo on Instagram at Dr. Teo Wan Lin for the latest podcast updates, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>